Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Amen. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Now this is a rhetorical question that Paul is asking today. If it had been a serious question, the answer could have been something like, look in the mirror, Paul, you are an excellent debater yourself. I mean, many of Paul's arguments have withstood the test of time, after all. Another serious answer to the question could have been, just head on down to the town square. Oratory was a very popular activity in this time, in this place, and people would regularly gather in the public square to debate. Classical oratory became popular in the 5th century Greek world and remained so into the Roman world and to the time of Paul and past Paul for several hundred years. Demosthenes and Cicero are probably the two most famous orators of this classical period, but a lot of folks engaged in it. Oratory was a standard part of the curricula in most schools of the day. Now certainly that leaves out a lot of people, um, as education is much more limited at that time, no such thing yet as universal education. But for all those privileged enough to have been formally educated, they would have studied oratory, including many of the people reading this letter. And for everybody in general, going and watching speeches and debates was a hugely popular activity. So this is definitely not a serious question. Everyone knows where to go find some good debaters. Paul is asking rhetorically. And what is the rhetorical point to his question? To kind of, to kind of mock them a little bit? I think more importantly, in order to make them a foil for his argument. Now, I have nothing against speech and debate. I used to be a competitive debater in high school and college. I learned valuable skills from the activity. And I don't think Paul has any problem with debate either. This whole letter is an argument. The part of the reading today is Paul beginning to lay the foundation for the argument he is making. Debate, then and now, is ultimately about success and winning. You want to be able to convince the judges or the audience that you are right and that your opponent is wrong. To win, to convince people, as Aristotle taught and as every orator would have studied at that time, use some combination of your own ethos, your presence, your expertise, your position, and the pathos of your audience, their fears, their anxieties, their worries, their pathologies, pathos, pathologies. And then third, your logos, your words, your carefully constructed logic, logos, logic, of your words. Ethos, pathos, logos, the trinity of classical rhetoric. But Paul wants to remind his readers, this relatively young Christian community in Corinth, that what really matters is not the logos of our arguments but the Logos of God. 
In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, and the Logos became flesh. Paul points toward this true Logos. Not the debater's Logos, not Aristotle's Logos, but the true and ultimate Logos, the incarnate Logos, the incarnate Word, Jesus Christ. And most importantly for his argument here is the Logos hanging there on the cross. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. This is counter to everything that the debater of Paul's age, of our age, of every age cares about. Losing instead of winning, failure instead of success. The cross, that shameful tool of execution of the Roman state, designed not only to kill and perhaps not even primarily to kill, but designed to publicly humiliate the victim and to make a point to the whole body politic. Now, there is no perfect equivalent in our world today, but certainly one way to think about the cross is as an ancient equivalent electric chair or lethal injection or the firing squad. An even better equivalent, though, is probably the lynching tree, which was not only used to kill individual black people, but as an act of torture designed to terrorize the entire black community and to send a message about white supremacy. To claim the cross instead of running from it was shocking, scandalous, and foolish. And yet, rather than be ashamed that the one we proclaim to be our Savior died on this tool of humiliation and terror, Paul is saying that God went to this evil that God was nailed to this evil, and God transforms this evil into the foundation of true wisdom, true knowledge, true discernment, true boasting. The cross is the foundation of Paul's argument that is going to take him to the audacious claims in this letter about what it means to truly be a baptized member of Christ's body. When he will claim that even the weakest, lowliest member is not only necessary, but often the most valuable. And it will take him to the audacious claims about the primacy of love over every other gift that God could possibly give us. Paul is laying the groundwork for his argument about what life in Christ is really about. What a perversion of the faith that the very thing that Paul says shall lead us to care for the most vulnerable and to love has been used to justify and commit violence. The lynching tree was used by Christians, by people claiming to be followers of a Savior who died in a similar manner. That is a perversion. Paul does not want us to become Pilate, but Jesus, to stop sending people to the cross, but to take up the cross and follow him, as Jesus said in the Gospel reading last week. Foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Winning, success, power, these all pull at us constantly. They are seductive. And yet they are nothing compared to God. The foolishness of God is greater than our wisdom. The weakness of God is greater than our strength. Winning, success, and power are all useless in the light of the cross. As Paul says, it's foolishness. 
It really is. It is foolish to set the cross before the values of this world. But it is a similar foolishness to the foolishness of calling the old and barren Sarah and her husband Abraham to be the ancestors of great nations, like we heard about last week. It's a similar foolishness to calling the murderer and poor public speaker Moses to lead a movement of liberation. It's a similar foolishness to calling the foreigner Ruth to be the great-grandmother of David and calling the greatest sinner, David, to be the greatest king. It's a similar foolishness to calling the much-too-young Jeremiah and the impure Isaiah and the contrarian Jonah to be God's prophets. It's foolishness. Foolishness. And it's foolishness for the Messiah to go to the cross to be slaughtered like a lamb. It's so foolish that Peter pulled Jesus aside last week to rebuke him for suggesting it. And it is so foolish that no one understands in today's gospel what Jesus is even talking about. It's only after the resurrection that the disciples begin to make any sense of what he said. It's foolishness. All foolishness. But it is the foolish wisdom of God. Foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved. It is the power of God. My friends in Christ, we live in serious times, times so serious that they demand God's foolishness to foolishly point to a still more better way, the way of love. Amen.